0: This week's podcast partner is Nuffield Australia. Applications for the 2025 program close on Friday the 31st of May. It's only a couple of weeks away. If you're looking to select a research topic that will be of use to you, your business, community and industry, and join a global alumni of more than 2,000 people while travelling the world to research that topic, apply for a Nuffield scholarship. Find out more at nuffield.com.au
1: it was like you've got one toilet we we'll give you one toilet break a day and he said um, but if otherwise you're going to have to go in the yards with the rest of them i said oh and i didn't care i was like 21 so i was like you don't care i don't care like yeah you know, whatever man i just want to be here with all these beautiful cows and so off we start and then and then he's he sort of would be yelling at me from the front veranda. he'd be like what are you walking for? And I'd be like, oh, all right. Like, and it was, and I'm running everywhere. Nobody else had to. It was just me. So it was a bit of sport, I think, for him. And I'd pee in the yards with everyone else, which drove everyone mad. They're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well.
0: Were you the only female there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was hell. mental.
1: So we loaded and unloaded cattle at those yards every afternoon and every night. And it was just mental.
0: G'day, guys. And welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast every week. It's me, Ollie Laleve, and it's great to be joining you guys again, so thanks for tuning in. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal Country in person with Olympia Yaga, which was so much fun. And if you want to watch the interview, jump over to our YouTube channel and just search Humans of Agriculture, and you'll be able to find it there. And while we're here on Ngunnawal Country, I'd like to acknowledge the Indigenous Australians as the first and original storytellers. Their stories have lasted and continue to inspire and engage people thousands of years later. They've crossed hundreds of generations, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. After losing her first child in her early 20s, Olympia packed up her life and headed to the Northern Territory. As she says, she was running away from her issues. And it was up there that she found herself working as the only female in an export yard, and as the only Olympia can do, she quickly became part of the crew. And I reckon she may have even surprised them. She headed for the U.S. after a bit of a stint up in the Territory and as an avid horse lover she became a horse trainer in Stephenville, Texas a Dry County. So, in true Olympia style, she'd work from 1am till 3 in the Arvo then she'd jump on her push bike and ride the six miles into town so she could sit at the club and have a beer after a long day's work. After a stint out there and having enough of the Dry County, Olympia headed over, fell in love and met her now husband, Eric. Eric's a US Marine who deployed to Afghanistan several times. Olympia shares the reality of what it was like living in a Marine Corps town. It wasn't a matter of when they're coming home. It was a matter of if they'd come home. And the harsh reality was that every day there were people stopped at traffic lights, crying, breaking down. It was just the reality of this. and Olympia is just simply extraordinary, as I reckon many of you will realise by the time you finish listening to this chat. Her will to make a difference is inspiring, and this is where she finds herself today. Reducing food waste from going to landfill and feeding it to her soldier flies, which ultimately then lead to becoming a stock feed. She cares deeply about the environment, and she's having a remarkable impact. If you want to find out more, check out her business, GoTerra, or follow the link in our show notes. Enjoy the chat. Olympia Yager, it's good to sit down with you. So good to be with you,
1: Ollie. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for having me at, at your place. We're down here in Canberra. You're certainly someone who's well-known in agriculture circles, but I'm not sure how many of my audience will be familiar with you and your story. Sure. And I think we can take the path of the insect lady and in that story and, and <laughs> everything you do in there. But I'm actually really keen to understand more about who you are, what's driving you, um, how you've got to where you are and, and how you're building that team and people around you. Yeah, let's do it. Fun beauty. Can you? Well, firstly, where are we? We're in Canberra, but we're out on the outskirts of town.
1: We are. We're in. So we're technically still in Canberra, and we're in the city limits. We're in the industrial zone of Canberra called Hume, um, and we're at GoTerra uh, headquarters and our Canberra plant. So,
0: yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about GoTerra?
1: Sure. GoTerra is a waste management technology company. So we've developed technology that farms insects autonomously. Um, And as a function of farming insects autonomously, we require large amounts of food waste. Uh, So we accept food waste um, as a fee for service. So we manage people's food waste on a per tonne Basis um, and we feed that waste to our insects. And we've got the technology so that we can send the insects wherever we like to manage food wherever people need us to manage it. Um, and so we've sort of created this distribution capability of managing food waste, waste wherever people need it. It's like landfill on demand.
0: And so, how does it work from start to finish? Sure. The process. Yeah,
1: so we're farming a species of, I- a species of insect called the black soldier fly. Um, essentially you throw your food waste away, whether you are a business or a retail or a manufacturer or a farmer um, or an office, um, and your food waste is collected. So it's collected either by your cleaning crew or by a a waste distributor. And then whoever collects it is bringing it back to us. Um, So if the unit's on site, they're going to bring it downstairs to the loading dock where all the other waste handling equipment is. Um, otherwise it's going to get picked up in a truck and brought to us. Um, we accept that waste and then we macerate it and we treat it um, and so we're taking the packaging off and we're getting it ready to be fed to insects and then we put it into a storage tank and then our robots are connected to those storage tanks. so every day those tanks are going to draw off that uh, those robots are going to draw off those tanks and feed the insects inside the robot. so a fully autonomous system to manage food waste. So it completely changed how we're managing the food waste, but we haven't disrupted any parts of our clients' lives. So
0: it's pretty cool. It is. So you're essentially taking food waste that otherwise would go straight into landfill. Correct. So you're taking the greenhouse gas emissions out of there.
1: Almost completely, yeah. Not entirely. There's still greenhouse gas emissions related to insect farming. It's about 1,700 CO2 equivalent kilos per tonne of waste to landfill and only 35 CO2 equivalent Uh, kilos per ton of waste to insects.
0: Wow. Yeah. I can't do the maths on what that is, but it's... Less. I was trying. Yeah,
1: yeah, just, it's all right, don't
0: go. Well, we better jump into just a light question, and it comes from a previous guest. Sure. And her question was, what are you doing to make the world a better place?
1: Yeah, right. Oh, that's such a hard one to answer, because there's so many different perspectives. Like at a superficial sort of the big vision piece, what we're doing to make the world a better place is to – create circular economy capability so we all talk about the circular economy and we're like oh we have to we have to reuse recycle valorize and all of those things and that sounds like a super great idea on a slide deck or on a piece of paper but like how do you do that if you don't have the technology to valorize or change the pathways and so when we talk about circular economy a lot it's like One or two links to the circle. What we're doing is adding like seven. And so you're really creating capability for people to adopt recycling practices wherever they are whatever food waste they have creating offtake that can be used in a multitude of different ways in a variety of different industries that has value as is doesn't need to be valorized much further Um, and then it's circular in its nature because it just goes right back around so at a sort of really high level that's what we're doing to make the world a better place is enabling the circular economy which we need to do so that we can you know Stop overusing what we produce. Um, yeah,
0: and is it something that it just comes to you overnight? This idea? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: no, it comes after s- significant errors and lots of pain. Um, but like, you know, insect farming is not new. People have been doing it for centuries. And then in this new wave of trying to do better in the world, it sort of last two decades, people have been in- farming insects in different ways. I come from conventional agriculture, and so when I was farming insects, I was like, oh, we're going to build a big factory like that like I was just going to follow that model and it made sense to me because it's intensive farming systems feed lotting you know poultry production whatever um but then I was like where the hell am I getting all this waste from? And when you first start, you have this like really it's like I look back now, I'm like, oh, that was an adorable idea, right? <laughs> like, because I was like building this colony and I'm like, oh, well, we'll get the food waste from this kind of waste stream or that kind of waste stream, and then we'll mix it into a blend, and that will that will eat you know mean that the protein is better quality. And then you're like, you get all these maggots and you're like, I just need something to feed them. I don't really care. Like I need to feed these. And then you realise that, oh, waste is way different to what I imagined. And all of the problems that come from feeding agriculture, low cost input formulas, like get where are you going to get all the, you know, everyone will say things silly like brewer's grain's really cheap. And it's like, where am I getting brewer's grain? Out the back of nowhere. Or, you know, know, chicken manure is really cheap if you want to put it on your paddock. And it's like, I live, like, out the back of no – like, the cost of transporting it is insane. So it's always going to be about access to input or output. And um, and so I realised really quickly that all I'd done is just recreate the same problems that – intensive agriculture suffers, but trying to use a substrate that's even more distributed. Because at least corn is grown in large quantities in one place, right? And it comes to you in large quantities. Food waste is like small quantities, like 500 kilos a week, a tonne a week, a tonne Mm. a day. That's small. Like it's really small. And um, you don't recognise that when you first start insect farming because you don't know what a tonne of food waste looks like. And now we're like – we see 50 tonnes and we're like, yeah – And so, you know, we always laugh like our first day of like a hundred ton a day, we'll be like, whoa. But, you know, (laughs) technically on waste management volumes, that's still, eh,
0: yeah. How have you gone up? We're going to jump around a lot, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make it fun. There's
1: lots going on.
0: (laughs) As an entrepreneur, as a business person, you started off with this big ambition.
1: Yeah.
0: How would you go as you actually came... Back and I'll say this politely, but back to reality of what was possible and what you could actually do to make influence. What yeah. was that like?
1: It, it's, it's sort of interesting because I'm kind of a really singular human. Like I don't – like I'm not – I get kind of narrow and I'm like, just make it happen. And so I just sort of get – Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. It's like head down and then I'm like, whoa, where is everyone? Um, and so I don't think I was necessarily um, – consciously evolving so much as i was just sort of keeping i kept throwing myself at the problem and then parts would fall over and others wouldn't and then you're just trying to you're literally just in front of yourself trying to solve each problem as they come up and then you look up and you're like oh so maggot robots that's what we're doing do you know what i mean like yeah. it wasn't necessarily a very you know clear-cut picture of like i'm gonna make a thing and then it was sort of like first realizing that yeah i didn't have a solution if we were going to continue to farm insects the same way and then from there like well how would this have to work and then from that then it was like oh getting to know what it actually means to farm that way so and I think if you can compare it or create the analogy for conventional agriculture it's sort of like it's 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 like if you we're cropping regular crops and then suddenly you decide you want to go to cannabis or something. And so it's like, oh, what gear do we need? Do we have the gear? Do we have to put the urea on in spring or summer? Like when it's it's learning the different things, a different tempo to the farming system um, so that you can do better. So organically is probably the better answer for that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. On the fly. On <laughs> the pun. Yes. <laughs> All right. The I'll see myself week- out. No, 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 no.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the veal. I'll be here <laughs> <Yeah>. all week. <laughs> Until seven. It's <Yeah. laughs> awesome.
0: Where, you mentioned traditional agriculture. Where did you grow up? Where did this journey start for you?
1: Here in Canberra, yeah. I'm um, not back. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're a Canberra girl. Yeah, born and bred, mate. There you go. Yeah, yeah. No, my family were the wogs that lived down on Mugger Lane and um, they had a yeah, you know, little small holding farm, fruit, poultry, pig, few pigs and whatever. And um even when I was born, you know, they still owned it. It's still there, the farm. It's yeah, you know, Canberra's a beautiful city because it still has farms inside its city borders. And um it's yeah, I can get there probably in five minutes by car from here. Um and uh it was a beautiful place and I I just loved it. Like even the chicken barn, like that poultry barn to me, I loved it and I loved all the animals in there, but I also loved what was happening, like the production of things. Like that just made – like I was so excited by that. Um, and so I just wanted to go to agriculture when I finished. I went to a Catholic girls' school for year 11 and 12. I went to boarding school in Yass and then uh, Catholic girls' school for year 11 and 12 back here in Canberra. And um, and so then it was like, oh, God, there's nothing at this school that tells – yeah, like I can use – like it was like biology. And that was it. Um, and so then I just – I didn't see a pathway to go to sort of like uni from there and so I ended up going to the Monero and got my wool classes certificate and started rouseabouting, and, you know, the same story of pretty much any young kid that didn't go to uni and wants to be in ag, so had a dog, yeah. swore too much and thought that was cool. <laughs> um yeah, and so that's where it started and then I moved to Goulburn. I got a job with the New South Wales Department of Ag on a sewage sludge trial and that was a really interesting and kind of formative thing for me as a young, young ag person because um, it was only a year and it was this intersection of agriculture and, and research and um, and what we were trialling were, it was back in the 90s and so it was literally trialling the first, because they were trying to get approval for sewage sludge application in agriculture. And so it was a 10-year trial and they were using rural trainees to to man it and we we there were three soil types and uh sort of traditional to the southern tablelands and we were running sheep on sort of dressings of this substrate so it's like yeah, 30 60 and 120 tons with a normal southern tablelands pastoral mix um and then merino use so we would you know data collection and farming and 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 um, and it's where I first start, fell in love, I guess, with sort of it didn't we didn't have a name for it then, but regenag and because you looked at the paddocks that had th- even thirty tons per hectare of dressing compared to the superphosphate control, and it, the 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 difference was just like you couldn't even argue it, like it was just so incredibly like poignant and then you would look at the 120 and you know we're in the middle of summer and it's phalaris literally to your waist and you couldn't find the sheep in there and they were so fat they couldn't hardly get pregnant and then <laughs> and then you were like you know a fat score of five and like everything yeah you know, they'd fall over and couldn't get back up they were so fat and it was the middle of summer and it was all green and so it's like how, how are you going to have an argument about that right like and so that was when I first realised that there were better ways of doing farming and I just sort of stayed. I wanted to do that kind of thing more.
0: And where did yeah. that journey take you?
1: So I ended up um, having a bit of a tragedy. I, moved, I was in Goulburn after working there and uh, my son died. And so then I took off to the Northern Territory, which is where everyone goes when life hits you a bit faster than you want it to. Um, I worked at the export cattle yards for a full three and a half, four months, I think it was, which was hilarious. That was when I really realised that, like, the battle for gender equality was just not even started. So I remember first day, it was – and I wanted to be there so bad. I started my first day and the guy goes to me, we don't want you here. And I was like, because a good first <laughs> <Yeah>. start. <laughs> it's like, good morning. <laughs> and it was like four in the morning, so it's like a, the wrong time of day for aggression. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? And so – um, yeah, so I'm like, all right. And he goes, we don't like women working here. He said, do you lot take too long in the toilets? And I'm like, oddly specific um, complaint. Um, and he's like – We can probably change that too, Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lots of options here. And I was like, yeah, but." And then he was like, you've got one toilet we, – we'll give you one toilet break a day. And he said, um, but if – otherwise you're going to have to go in the yards with the rest of them. I said, oh. And I didn't care. I was like 21. So I was like – <laughs> you don't care, I don't care. Like, yeah, you know, whatever, man. I just want to be here with all these beautiful cows. And so off we start. And then and then he's he sort of would be yelling at me from the front or He'd be like, What are you walking for? And I'd be like, oh, f- All right. Like and like, I'm running everywhere. Nobody else had to, it was just me. So it was a bit of sport, I think, for him. And I'd pee in the yards with everyone else, which drove everyone mad. They're like, What are you doing? And I'm like, Well, <laughs>
0: Were you the only female there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was hell. mental.
1: So we loaded and unloaded cattle at those yards every afternoon and every night, and it was just mental. But it taught me so much about handling cows, and yeah, it was such a great experience. And then I ended up, um, once we finished up there, I moved uh, to the US and started training horses, which was kind of cool.
0: Was it a, a love of horses that had followed you? through and had taken you to the US? or was Yeah,
1: like what kind of girl, what, our girl doesn't love a horse? Like I don't, I don't really know if anyone <laughs> doesn't want to be around horses and it was more like, someone had put me onto it, It was you've got to remember back then it was like late 90s so there wasn't a lot of like, there was no Facebook or any of that to find these things and I had to fill out this form and then fax it back to somebody to say I wanted to move to the US and one phone call with a dude and then I got on a plane and flew over there. So it's like, you think about that now and it's like now you'd be doing like Zoom calls and yeah. all sorts of like a lot more softer landing around going to a strange place. But, yeah, I just I found out about it and I just got on a plane and ended up in Stephenville, Texas, which has no uh, – it's dry dry county. There's no alcohol there. And that was interesting.
0: So heavily Christian?
1: Very, yeah. It's It's the cowboy capital of the world, so Lane Frost is from there and like all this sort of – Really, I know, big bull riders. it, uh, And, uh, and uh, yeah, it was a dry county, so I would ride my bicycle into town every, every day at 3 o'clock. So we, we worked from 1 to 3, so 1 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon I'd get on my bicycle and ride six miles to town to drink at the one club where you were legally allowed to have a beer. It was just like what a ridiculous thing to do, and I'm like, I will have a beer yeah, after yeah, work. Gosh I darn it. Beer. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then I'd like pedal home. It's like there's so much
0: better things to do with your time, you idiot. One a.m. until three p.m. Yeah, On in the, the summer for those hours.
1: Well, forty. No, no, it's uh, forty-five head of horses to train, and only two two groom, strappers, and a trainer. And then so, Texas summer is 110 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and cows just. They don't want to move around in that weather, so tried to get everything worked and done by sort of ten o'clock in the morning, and then now you've got all the jobs to do. So you've got to clean all the stalls and feed everything and wash everything down and you know feed cows and do all the rest, and then you'd be done. And then you do a quick feed in the afternoon, sort of five to eight.
0: <laughs> After the pub, <fun. laughs> <laughs> yeah. After a quick bike ride, a couple of beers. Yeah, and yeah, and then. <laughs>
1: Living in my, my double wide, my single wide trailer, yeah, so. How cool. Yeah, it was cool, actually. I got to I got to work with some really cool trainers. I got to work with some really great horses and drive big trucks. It was a good time. How long were you doing that for? So I did it for five years total, five and a half years. Yeah, wow. it was great. So, yeah, I got to see the world from a whole different perspective and, and ride some really beautiful horses and see some really good fun things. Yeah. Could
0: you have stayed there forever or why'd you move?
1: Yeah, well, it was only I ended up um, in a not great relationship again. And um, <laughs> classic, I'm a bit of a slow learner, I realise. Um, but um, yeah, and I had a, I had my second son and I just could not stay, like competing professionally and or working with competitive trainers is like you're on the road all the time, you're working really long hours. And I had a small kid and so um, I moved back into town and, took a bunch of weird jobs manning tanning salons and working at um banks and trying to sort of make a living. It was yeah, it was a bit of it was really difficult because for me leaving the Australia was sort of like giving up on ag a little bit. Because horse training is an ag. It is, but it isn't. Like don't hate Asterisk. me. Yeah, don't hate me, horse people. It's different. It really like it there is, right? Um, not to slice the die too too finally, but um, I felt like I'd already sort of moved away from ag by doing horse training, and and then finding myself managing a tanning salon was just like, geez, that interesting career move. Well, it's just desperation. <laughs> like you're just looking for any job, and when you've when you've been in ag for a really long time, and then you're like, what have you done in the last five years? I'm like, train horses. What does that qualify you to do in the real world? Very little. Like, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, nobody's making those. Um, you know if she can do this then she can do that stuff and um, I still was young enough that I hadn't really progressed my career outside of general dog's body and willing to do a lot of work person Yeah. Um, and so yeah you just sort of end up in jobs that aren't necessarily what you thought they would going to be but I actually learned a lot from them because it was a um, you know that tanning salons are really big in the US obviously people are addicted to tanning something I didn't know I'm full of useful tanning trivia if you ever ever want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, it's taken <laughs> me this
0: long to think that it was just like a fake tan salon, not the beds. No, beds. beds. Mm. Yeah. Slow learner. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had 14 ta- beds in our tanning salon and one spray booth, and they do different things for you. So if you want a chocolate brown tan, you get in this booth. If you want a quick deep tan, you'd get into this bit Like, I'm not joking. There's, like, It's like, it's insane. But... Tanning salons make money on minutes. People sit in a tanning sal- bed and you don't always use the full minutes and then also tanning products. And so sales was like this massive thing for that organisation and you were just trained and trained and trained to sell. Um, and I'm really lucky because I can sell the legs off anything now. Yeah, like wow. just anything. Yeah, I was always kind of okay at selling stuff but now it's like, oh, what do you want me to sell? Because I can sell, literally, I can sell tanning salon to people with ethnic backgrounds like mine who <laughs> don't need tanning products at all. <laughs> you should be browner. <laughs> a different kind of brown. Not so much a red brown, so much as a chocolate Stand brown. against
0: this wall. That's and... right.
1: Like a paint swatch. <laughs> yeah.
0: mm, keep going, keep going. What are you thinking?
1: What are you thinking? Yeah. So, yeah, it just... I don't know. I... I when it was happening, I didn't like it. I was, like, really angry and really resentful and I kind of scoffed and made fun of those jobs. And, you know, when I worked in the bank, it was the sort of same thing. Like, I was grateful to work, but um, I was just sort of like, oh, I want to go back to ag. But I didn't realise that these were actually jobs that were setting me up and giving me experience that now I'm really grateful for. I'm really glad I have because I've had professional training to get me there. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting when you reflect on it.
0: What was keeping you in the US?
1: Oh, I met a really beautiful man. It's always the reason. Someone, mm. You meet someone that's just amazing and you're like, oh, I could go home to Australia or stay here where children get killed by gun violence and he's beautiful enough, I'll stay here where children get killed by gun violence. <laughs> so we stayed. Um, yeah, I met my husband Eric and uh, he was in the military and so he was in the marine corps um and obviously the iraq war had kicked well 911 happened in my second year in the us and um and then of, of course you know all of the marine corps started um deployments to iraq and afghanistan in 2002 2001 2002 and um and didn't well didn't stop until just recently obviously so um, he deployed his first time in 2003 with the invasion in Iraq and then continued to deploy um, four or five more times um, through to 2012. So, yeah.
0: Would have been a pretty interesting time for you, having yeah. your husband pack up and leave and wondering if or when yeah. he'll come back.
1: Yeah, it was mad. Like, uh, Australians have got a really close connection, obviously, with Anzacs and, like, we, you know, we connected to our military in a way and i th- and um i think we all have an affinity to the story of our veterans but not like america does and then living in a marine corps town which you know is exists purely to service this group of humans and and that group the, the marine corps of all of the services the marine corps is the one that's the most tribal in my opinion like mm-hmm. you you are, you're not, you weren't an ex-army person You you can be an ex army person, sorry, but you're never an ex marine. You are like you can get out of the marine corps, but you are still a marine. And so they've like got this really deep and very like embedded culture. And so when you're part of that organisation, you're like it is super tribal. And so here you are living in this town that's mostly strip joints and chicken wing bars and laundromats and um, a tanning salon, and a few tanning salons and baptist churches it sort of just went like that <laughs> it's like strip mall baptist church chicken wings laundromat tanning salon you can see salon. The cycle of yeah, life yeah, in front of you. just yeah you, know, you could in a day hit all of them and <laughs> and call it complete so um, yeah so we did all of that and um, but you know during the particularly the really sort of really kinetic part of the Iraq war say 2004 through to 2009, um, you know, you'd be at traffic lights because we're all wives and so like we'd be at the traffic lights and there'd be four of us sitting in the cars all not knowing each other, just crying and, and you know, people breaking down. You'd be like walking through Walmart and then you just hear someone start screaming and crying on the ground and you knew what was going on and and it just... It's an odd place to be, like that's surreal, right? Yeah. Like, because you're not, you're not experiencing the war as an abstract through your news, or because your mate Jerry has a brother who went, um, or you have a brother that went, you're experiencing that collectively as, a, as a community, and, and in a really impactful way. Um, so it was like mental. It was, it was really, really, really
0: hard. Yeah. What's it like to have? Walked away like from that part of like yeah, what was the instigator of for you or your husband to move on from yeah the, the army?
1: i I kind of I couldn't do it anymore. so in two thousand and ten, I just sort of like he was not well. he was diagnosed with PTSD in his fifth deployment. Um, and the Marine Corps, at the time he was with special forces um, marine special operations command and and um was an operator there and um you know as long as you self identified and you got your ass to psych, they were happy for you to keep going um sure <laughs> and um but like yeah, he was not well, and I wasn't well like you know wives and family members and partners and husbands they they weren't as well, well either because to your point. When they deploy, you legitimately spend nine months, seven months, whatever their length is, thinking every day that you're going to get that call. And there was enough um, happening because we were in a combat unit that it was not if but when. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you don't realise how hard that is to actually move through until you move away with it and you're like – that, like, yeah. why do we do that to ourselves for so long? Like, but when you're in it, you're like, just
0: comes the cycle,
1: it's just is what it is. And so, yeah, so I got to that, and I just, I just recognized that I was just becoming really resentful, I was getting really reactive to like people dying, um, getting really aggressive about the whole thing. And, um, I was working pretty closely with Marine Corps Special Operations Command at the time, and I was part of the family readiness program. We'd started a charity to support families because like the irony of the military in the US is that like they mostly live on the poverty line so you know as a young PFC without a family you make about 18 grand a year um as a sergeant with a with a family you make uh, maybe 45,000 a year um and so like your wife tend, or your partner, husband, whomever is the human at home, tends to not work because how the hell can you work if you've got kids mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're a single parent? And so it's quite difficult to do um, and so they just end up not working. So now you're at home with kids and most of them are really young and you spend most of your time thinking their dad or their mother is dead or might be soon yeah. and it just it turns you into a bit of a midget. And so we started this charity tra- to be like all right we recognize our families are like really stressed and they've been doing this war thing now for literally 10 years how do we make give them back so we were you know, making scholarships for wives to go and get go to school again or kids to go get tutoring cuz they suffer a lot of learning disabilities um military children um get them into sport because there's a higher rate of incidences of Self harm, suicidal ideation, and um, depression in military kids. So it's like trying to like, but when you're dealing with that and you're awarding scholarships to families who are literally like, Jimmy needs to take tennis lessons because he's cutting. He's nine. Like, yeah. holy hell, you know, it just hurts after a while, and you can't sort of stop seeing it, and you just want it to end. So um, I was like, I'm done. If you keep going, I can't stay. And he was like, "No, I'm done too." So he had called and said, "I can't keep doing this." And I'm like, "All right, well, let's stop." So he had to do one more deployment after that, and then um, and then we got out.
0: Yeah. Job you can't quit. No, nah, no.
1: Nah. Once you sign up, you got four. It's four more for the core is what they say. So every time, if you sign on the bottom line, you've, it's a four year contract, and so you can decide for one year in, I'm done. You got another three. Three more to go.
0: Huh. Yeah.
1: It's it's interesting.
0: What was it like coming back to Australia after oh, a little while away?
1: Massive culture shock. Yeah. I'd changed a lot. Like the what I love about America is they're just like they are, they would champion you know anything. Anyone, anything, anyhow. Like they, that they they have an indomitable spirit for positivity and like um that you can, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that's just like baked into their brain and all those cowboy movies where they're like you know, you're know, you sort of super American it's like that's still like such a beautiful thread in their culture like you can like and it comes out in different ways but what I love about them is like, like my husband I could be like I think what I'm going to do is make ashtrays out of fecal waste I'm going to sell them at the market so he's like excellent I'll help right like and you're like I don't know if that is an excellent idea actually and he'll be like no let's do it let's make lots of them where else can we like you know and so there's just nothing that you can't do in Americans mind and and funnily enough that in in their world I was like really pessimistic because interesting I was still very Australian so they'd be like hey how are you and I'll be like fine yeah and they're like Right? Why? At me. Why? You, yeah. Why aren't you being really friendly? You know, because I in Australia, you would not yell across a quadrangle like that to yeah. like random people. But they're like, "Oh my god, it's you!" Hey, yeah, like they, yeah, they like make you feel like you're like the most important person in the room mm-hmm. at all times. And I'm all, I'm Australian, so I'm all like, "Yeah." like <laughs> what? <laughs> and then. Over the time, I started to be like, "Hey," which for me, like, I still wanted to peel my skin off because I was just like, "This is a lot." And they were like, "Oh, okay, maybe you are not too bitchy, <laughs> right?" Yeah. And now I come to Australia, I am like, "Hey," and everyone's like, "All right, chill out, fire out. We're just going for coffee. Why?" Yeah, you know, like it's <laughs> like this really strange thing, um, but you know, it was it was time to be home, and I was ready to come back. So it's been good.
0: This week's podcast sponsor are our friends over at Boarding Schools Expo. Amanda and her team, for more than 20 years, have been bringing boarding schools closer to the places that people call home. Over 15,000 children have met their future boarding school at one of their events. At the end of June, they're hosting an event in Wagga, so if you're keen or know someone who might, head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au, to find out more. When you got home were was this entrepreneurial spirit kind of ignited, and were you keen to do your own thing, or where'd you find your feet once you got yeah. back in it
1: it was sort of this whole it, I didn't know who I was, and it's it's a hard thing I think I've talked to a lot of people about this, and it happens in any kind of any industry that ends up being more of a culture or a way of life than it is just a job right mm-hmm. so agriculture's very similar it's not a it's not a job it's a yeah. it's how we live it's a, it's who you are it's part of the fabric of your identity and when that changes or shifts or something breaks in that relationship it's actually really hard to understand who you are cuz you're like well if i'm not in the marine corps anymore i'm yeah. not part of that big machine who who are we and even though we didn't want to be there anymore it, we didn't know we didn't fit because our jokes were really dark and kind of gross and our experiences were really sad and tragic but they were our normal experiences and so we'd we'd go to these parties and we'd be like yeah and then our friend jimmy came home without t- legs and everyone would be like what and we'd be laughing because like we know these stories of like funny things that have happened in these tragedies and like people would be like edging back and like i have to go Right now, like you know, and we'd be <laughs> left standing there going, oh, Don't talk about the hard stuff. So it was super hard to find our feet or even find out where we belonged. And then I realized I sort of naively thought that I'd just be able to come back to ag and get a job and it'd be fine. And it wasn't because I'd when was the last time I'd worked in ag? Yeah. And look, now my resume was all upside down the other way, right? Like I was trying to get a job back in ag and they're like, you haven't been in ag since, you know, Moses was put in a basket (laughs) like (laughs) ages ago. (laughs) And even that experience has, you know, you're you're nearly 40, you've got no management experience, you've got, you know, in ag, you've got no extra courses, you've done this sustainability course. What does that even mean? Like I was just, I was literally back at the beginning again. And that that was just really hard for me to try and reconcile because I would just sort of gone if I just go home I can go back to what was and it will be fine, um, and so that's why I think you know I ended up really looking at the insect part because it was like well maybe I'll just do it on my own and I was going to we couldn't afford to buy a working farm because far out that's just mental, um, and we had the credit rating of a two year old mm-hmm. um, and so. <laughs> We were like, well, maybe we'll just buy you know, 10 acres and run chooks and do, sell them at the market. The cost of feed was just mental. So it was originally just like make maggots to feed this.
0: This little chicken farm.
1: Chicken farm, yeah.
0: And it kept growing.
1: And then it was like making maggots is hard enough as it is. not don't, don't need to add the chicken farm.
0: <laughs> and that's where the idea yeah. kind of started and it just kept yeah, like incrementally yeah. growing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird? It's so Crazy. interesting how that works, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Tell me, when was it like, when was the realisation that, yeah, you needed to focus on this maggot opportunity? Or when was it an actual opportunity?
1: Yeah, so I, again, I was just like, I'll just make maggots and we'll just figure it out and we'll make them on the farm and then we'll sell it to the, to feed it to the chickens and it'll be a thing. And so then I was like, oh, we're living in town, so while I'm living in town then we'll just try and figure out this maggot thing and it took so long to get them to work because I didn't have climate control rooms or anything and it's Canberra. Yeah. So like the period of time that the weather's like good and not extreme is like, this is like two minutes in spring and two minutes in autumn. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I had flies in my kitchen in this like plastic dome. Cause it was like the closest thing I could do to climate control. And, um, and then I had the maggots on a heat pad and under an electric blanket in my garage So, like, again, not optimal. Um, And getting them to just cycle was just hard in those kind of conditions. But once I finally got them to do it and I realised what I needed to do and and that sort of felt easy, then you could see the opportunity for how big it would get. And then at that point I was like, oh, this will take up all your time. Like, you're not doing any other – you're already farming, trying to make insects. You're not – Going to be then going now that I'm finished ten hours of that kind of farming, let me go
0: mess What's around next? with a chook
1: for a second. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. So that was sort of there, and then that as that colony grew, that then it sort of the logistics of how that business would work and the model of that business is where it started to evolve. Because it's like, okay, well, now we're going to just farm the maggots. I'm the maggot lady. That's cool, but like now it's like, where do I get all the food waste from?
0: And, yeah,
1: so it's just these sort of step changes in understanding the business, I think.
0: And the most peculiar thing, because I feel like most people in Australia are like, these bloody flies, I want to get rid of them. And you're like, make more. How do we get more flies?
1: <laughs> I know. I always laugh. one of the things I used to say back in the day was like I started as a maggot farmer, I was like, I'm ending as a maggot farmer, The just the location is different. It's, <laughs> like, it's like, I don't know, like when you start with sheep, it's like kill every maggot, kill every fly. And I'm like, like please live yeah. if you guys could just have sex so yeah yeah if you guys could just have a little bit more sex and lay a few more eggs that'd be really grand like what has changed but i love it like intech farming is like such a it's so interesting because there's still so much room to be creative so like your opportunities to be creative in intensive ag or conventional ag are still there, but they're now in the margins of efficiencies, right? Like our e- EBVs, like we're looking like for a 0.5% improvement. These are like massive yeah. things. Like you can really like shift the needle by big margins just by learning new things. And so there's this really beautiful opportunity to be super creative in this industry that, you know, again, yeah, you can be creative in conventional agriculture, but you're now in the margins of creativity, right? Like a different kind of cow or a different kind of crop or, you know, thinking about it this way, but this is like, oh, if we actually just change these parameters, holy crap, this has changed. Do you know what I mean? So there's just something a bit fabulous about that and exciting that, yeah, keeps you coming back.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And it's because there's not many in Australia that are – actually, in this insect game? Is it big no. globally?
1: Like, it's big as far as emerging in- industries are concerned. And Australia's got some pretty good people, like, coming up now. We've got probably about – there's about five or six that are starting to really get some stride and get some commercial capability going on. And, you know, guys over in Western Australia, uh, Future Green Solutions, they've been running the the longest fish feed trial in the world, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to give it to him anyway. Yeah, let's just say st- Let's just I'm say a yeah, it's true.
0: New- <laughs> news breaker.
1: Yeah, yeah. It happened on this podcast, therefore yeah. it's true. <laughs> 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 Luke, Luke, you owe me if you're listening. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, so there's, as always, doesn't matter, the agriculture Australia is kind of leading and doing really meaningful things. But, yeah, there's not, like, a lot of us.
0: You'd know Ready to set up an industry body, wouldn't you? We did.
1: Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, because in Australia you can't talk to anyone if you don't have an industry body. So I started that in 2017. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then um, the reins of chair went over to Duncan Rowland, who's the head of Stock Feed Manufacturers Council of Australia, who's just, yeah, if we're going to deal with regulation in feed and build a new industry that feeds into agricultural feed, like who better to chair the insect product? So I um I was like, please take that and I just threw it at him essentially. I was like, bat on like and, <laughs> he, and then he caught it and I was like, bye. It's, like, <laughs> no, it's not true. He was legitimately elected and uh in due course and rightly so. So he um he's just been a really massive help to the industry because that's what you need, right? When all new agricultural industries need the support, input and and um and feedback from those stakeholders who's done the hard yards before you, mm. right? Like you can't start anything new if you haven't learned from those who've gone before you, yeah. and from those who will be your stakeholders or your your clients. And so, um, yeah, we're as an industry we're super fortunate that Duncan's like just been such a huge supporter um, because he comes with a he comes with such credibility in that industry.
0: That's cool. Mm. I want to take a slight side step. And yeah. s- talk a bit about your people. I've had the chance to yeah. walk around and see some of them, but you started this off as a solo founder yeah. and started building a team. You've got a w- world of experience behind you in terms of what you've been through yeah. um, through your life. But where did you, where did you start? And as you're building the team, what were you looking for? And how did you work out who you needed to grab? Yeah,
1: I, I I've always had lofty goals of the kind of team I wanted to build. And um don't I think the hardest part as a single founder that I've found is that um I didn't realise at the time that um building a team as the only founder meant that you really had to be okay all the time. Like you can't let your team see you go through a journey. And I've not been successful at that. Like, you know, it's it's very hard to do. Um, and so when things go to shit and you need someone to talk to it's you you are their person yeah. um they are not your person and and that is really hard and feels really lonely mm. um and so again even though you know made probably just as many if not more mistakes and got right what what i've always tried to do is make sure that we have enough diversity of voice in the conversation that our aperture never closes in a way that makes us dangerous, right? And what I mean by that is I think sometimes you can think that you know your industry, you know what you do, and so you don't need to ask outside the bubble of that. Yeah. And I think that's where industries really end up a bit stuck because mm-hmm. and, and kind of reactive to any input from that outside. Don't tell us how to do that. Yeah. Or you don't know how we do our business, leave us alone. You
0: just need to listen. That's
1: right, yeah. And so I... I think what I've learned in my career is it's like the things that you're going to learn and the things you need to learn aren't always going to come from the place where you think they're going to come from and, in fact, you should hope that that's true because – and so, you know, we started out of luck that we found some people that had moved to Cranmer recently and they weren't allowed to work or could work but couldn't get jobs. So, like, people with, like, literal PhDs or lawyers, like – we had one who was a lawyer who worked at the Hague and could not get work doing anything but pulling beers in Australia because she wasn't a citizen and she worked for us for like nearly a year. Yeah. And and what I learned from having those people on board early was it's like different walks of life doing different kinds of jobs think about things differently and that there's some there's some beautiful magic that happens there. So now we've kind of got this team that's like really diverse um come from all walks of life doing all kinds of jobs and um and and have disability at GoTerra so it's more than 25% of our workforce is working with disability and but not in sort of the more conventional working from disability with disability approach um where people are like oh here's our working for disability person and they are on a broom like yeah. do you know what I mean like we're like no how can we give meaningful careers to people who have disabilities and And is it possible? And and it is. And so because of that, though, we've got lots of different ways of thinking, engaging on problems, and so we tend to be able to solve problems a lot faster, I think, here than what we would if we had lots of people that all think the same about the same thing.
0: How on earth do you go building that kind of culture in the early stages That is, yeah, has the ability to attract and encourage people from diverse backgrounds to actually come
1: Come in. in? Like... Again, we haven't always got it right. I think we started, I was really fortunate with the disability side of things that we had a disability work person called Alistair come to work for us and he just taught me so much about what it meant to have, um, to be legitimately um, employed and what he meant by that was like, I I have a job because I am good at my job. I don't have a job because you need me here cheaply or because you're trying to do some sort of token thing. Mm. Like you actually appreciate me f- for my work. Um, and so I learned from him that all people really want to do is be seen. So it doesn't matter what – like any of us, like that. that's the whole group of us, right? But what we forget because of our unconscious bias is that some people don't get seen at all. So how do you make it so that you're automa- you start off as a business that want people to come? Um, so if we started with the ad. So the ad says minorities, disabilities, veterans are encouraged to apply. Um, and I think that's just always just a signal, right? Because a lot of people, and I know only because my husband came as an American and he couldn't get work, and this is a mm. guy with, a, like, the a highest security clearance in American military, like, yeah. a very distinguished career and couldn't get a job um, because none of his experience was Australian. And so if the white guy yeah. <laughs> from America can have that prejudice, we all know that mm. the other people from countries where we don't look the same have even more difficulties and women have even more difficulties. And so um, that was sort of the first bit to sort of create the permission you are you are encouraged to try, right? So that was the first part. The second part was to recalibrate on what interviewing people meant. So if you're looking for people from diverse backgrounds, um, disabilities, different cultures, you've got to be prepared to not interview everybody the same to get the same outcome. So um, with disability work, we don't do any written tests. We do those verbally, but then sometimes... Um, depending on the disability, will actually send them the questions beforehand so that they can write their answers out because their ability to answer on the fly is sometimes difficult if they're stressed. Yep. So just doing human things yeah. that don't affect the outcome for or against in any way, like they still have to answer the question. Yeah, It doesn't take away how hard it is or what they're trying to do, but just being more human in how we think about That, I think, has been the key part. And then we were just super fortunate that our head of people, Laura, isn't a head of people, and so she just found she was able to not look at people in buckets that are more traditional. And she would find – she'd call me and she'd be like, I need you to go interview this guy. Um, One of the classic ones is a guy called Juan, who's our service technician up in Sydney. She said, oh, go go interview this guy. She goes, his resume – yeah, I don't know, but like there's something about him that I just think you need to, you know, you're up there, can you interview him? And I interviewed him and she goes, it's for a part-time job doing this. And I'm like, cool. And then I interviewed him, I'm like, yeah, like full-time but doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I'm like, this guy's awesome. And he is, like he's, he will fix anything, he'll do anything. And it turns out that he'd actually written his resume and taken a lot of his actual experience off. Because he'd found that he couldn't get jobs, because and so he came at, when we, we hired him. He was working as a um, person cleaning a f- food court, but his career has been agricultural management engineer, like managing people, training people. Like he's he's like exceptional. Guru. Yeah, he's a he's a god. He's a mid whisperer. We say, <laughs> but um, yeah, we would never have found him if we hadn't been looking.
0: What do you reckon your proudest achievement is that you've that, done here?
1: Yeah, that. Yeah, like we've done cool stuff. Like we've commercialized tech real quick. We've got great clients that are incredibly impressive, and we've done a lot of work in a lot of sh- really short period of time. But for me, it's like yeah, turning up to work and seeing yeah people from all walks of life, all kinds of disciplines. Um, Loving the fact that they have a place that they can be themselves that we haven't tried to change anyone. You can just be you can be rough as guts, you can be a PhD student you can and, and every and everything in between. and you still have a seat at our table. Like, yeah, like I said, haven't always got it right every time, but we've got it right most of the time and it feels pretty awesome.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. I've got a, a couple of questions and I think it will flow in really nicely to that. So I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. They get, if they get the chance to go back to a Year 10 class and give them life advice around pursuing a career in agriculture and this yeah. big wide thing we call the food system, Yeah, what would be your, your advice to them?
1: Ooh. Don't, don't get hitched first. Stay single for a while so that you can really try quite a few jobs in a, quite a few regions. Travel. See some other places. So, if your hometown is Goulburn, get your first job in San Paulo <laughs> <laughs> on a banana farm. And if you want to stay in sheep and cattle, get your first job in horticulture. Understand what the parts of the the food chain and the agricultural systems that bump up against the place you want to be. Understand that first, because when you come back to the place that you want to be, you will have such a just a better understanding of how to do your job well and why those people matter. If you can have that shared understanding, then then you're actually going to be much better at your job than than you would if you just stayed drinking bathwater in the sheep station. Do you know what I mean? Never really understanding the rest.
0: Yeah. Take the a, blinkers off.
1: Take them right off. Throw them away. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm really interested in this one. What you're going to come up with? <laughs> What's a question you'd like me to ask a future guest? That's a good sigh, isn't it? Yeah. No, that's a good one.
1: It is a (laughs) a thing. (laughs) I want to come up with something profound and now I'm like stuck because my brain's just like flatline. How can agriculture lean into the feedback of its customers instead of rejecting the feedback of their customers? I think that's something we need to talk about a lot more. We don't want anyone telling us how to grow our food, and we're the only industry in the world who thinks we have the right to tell our customer that they don't have a right to tell us how to deliver what they want. Don't tell us how to do our job. It's and interesting. I, yeah, I want. I would like to know what the how they would, how they would help agriculture turn that around and use it to their benefit.
0: It's interesting. I've had, I reckon, over the last few months. On two occasions, where I've been mean, sitting in a room, completely different people, one from an aquaculture, well, fishing background, one from a beef background, and they just, like, well, the consumers just need to accept that it is what it is and yeah. they just need to listen to us. And I was like, Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. And I, like, for me, I was like, Who needs to do the listening? And I don't, well, the, yeah, both sides probably.
1: Absolutely, right. But I think this is where, um, we're confusing our lifestyle and our identity with our service provision and our product. They're not the same thing. And I think that's where we're getting mixed up because we're like, when people say, I want you to grass-feed my beef and you're a feedlotter, I feel like the response indicates to me that you're not hearing, hey, I, want, I have an impression that this is a better way. Can I get that, please? And then mitigating that on your own terms, either with more education or changing whatever. Mm. Instead, you're saying, you're hearing the way you do life, the identity of you, the thing that you are most proud of, I don't like it, I want you to stop. Yeah. And I think we take personally the feedback of our clients. Volkswagen does not take it personally when I tell them I want white interior seats instead of black. They just give me an option to have white interior seats instead of black. Yeah, they don't go oh you couldn't possibly and they sure as heck don't say you'll get whatever interior seat colour we tell you you're going to get Yeah, it's in, I, think, I think we can hold our culture and hold our identity but separate it from the feedback from our customer who wants better and and ironically if we joined them on that journey the relationship would be better
0: mm, imagine what we could do I know, it
1: would be pretty kick ass
0: I've never got to think I'm going to ask that question.
1: <laughs> I didn't phrase it well. That's up to you, Ollie. That's your job.
0: I think you nailed it. <laughs> well, Olympia, thank you so much for having me in for a chat. It's been an awesome hour.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It was a real pleasure, Ollie. Thanks for your time.
0: Olympia has just such an extraordinary story and just such an incredible journey that she's been on. She's lived several lives in the one that she's got so far and. I just found it so interesting how she talked about the the transition as an Australian going into America and then also then coming back to Australia and just the culture shock that she had going both ways if you want to check out more about her business check out goterra um, the links in your show notes or jump over to our socials and have a look it's uh, it's a pretty cool business avocag is headed to Adelaide on the 21st and 22nd of February 2023 and this podcast is part of our collab with avocaG for that if you want to hear from more incredible innovators like the ones that we've featured in these chats, be sure to check out tickets or partnerships at evocag.com.